Welcome back to The Deeper Cut, a podcast ministry of Mercy Hill Presbyterian Church. I am so thrilled to be with you again this week, and man, we have a full show ahead of us today. Um, so let's dive right in, and, and I'd like to welcome and and um, and say good morning remotely to uh, my co-host and our pastor, Phil Henry. Phil, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Jim. I'm coming to you live from sunny Lancaster, Pennsylvania today. <laughs> coming to me live, not coming to our listeners live well, necessarily. But yes, we have, we have a remote show on tap for this morning um, as we are is, separated by quite a distance. What's that, Phil? Tap is, tap is an appropriate word for Lancaster. It's like every other store down here is a brewery. Mm. Well, there's not much to do in central Pennsylvania besides farm, drink coffee, and brew beer, I think. so. Okay. I, I am not in a brewery, though. I just want to make that clear. <laughs> I tried, but it, none of them were open this morning. There you go. So, so you went to the next best place, huh, Phil? <laughs> no comment. <laughs> we'll, we'll, uh, we'll leave that to our listeners' imagination. I'm um, an undisclosed location. Yes, yes. Before, <laughs> before, we, before this goes off the rails already two minutes in, um, we have a guest joining us as well this morning. So, Phil, would you do the honors of introducing our guest to our listening audience? Yes. I'd like to give a warm welcome to the podcast to Mr. Kevin Tenyu. Kevin, good morning. Hey, good morning, everyone. Glad to be here. Thanks for joining us, Kevin. It's a quick uh, plug for Kevin. Kevin is a uh, member of our church and one of our esteemed deacons and um, uh, a good friend as well. So I'm super happy for Kevin to join us. Looking forward to your contributions this morning, Kevin. Looking forward to it, too, 100%. Not sure what I'm doing here, but we'll see. <laughs> you fit right in. You'll fit right in. It's great to have you with us. Kevin, thanks for taking the time this morning. And um, man, like I already alluded to, we have a full show because there's a lot to talk about from this week's passage in First John. Um, for those who might be tuning in for the first time to our podcast, we are... Uh, reviewing uh, kind of at a deeper level with with further conversation and discussion the sermon that's preached at mercy hill from the previous sunday and in this case this was um, the 18th of february and phil's sermon was on first john 2 verses 7 through 11 and we'll uh, actually read that text this morning and go through it in in greater detail but before we dive in we always do a small segment at the beginning of the podcast where we talk a little bit about the the art and the work of preaching or also called homiletics and so phil my question to you today is occasionally you go this route where not only will the title of your sermon be the form of a question but in this case it was a negative question why don't you um which is Slightly antagonistic, but in a, in a brotherly, loving way. So, um, you know, 
I suspect it's probably not wise to do that weekly, um, but every now and then it's probably helpful for the church to to be challenged in that way. So is that was that your thinking this week, or or what was God laying on your mind and your heart to do this week with the sermon? Well, uh, it's a great question. Thanks for noticing that. My original title was positive. Um, how to love your brother and then my two points were exactly what they were you know, by by being true and by being new but i think in, in a way the title and i'd like i'd like to get your thoughts on this too kevin in a second but the title implies the challenge of the text itself. Like, why would John even countenance the notion that anyone in this church would hate anyone? And so, by starting out of the gates with the negative, I wanted to, I was trying, at least rhetorically, through the power of the Spirit, I was inviting people to lower their guard and saying, rather than saying, I don't hate anyone, just to begin right away saying, okay, how am I implicated by this text? I didn't want there to be any distance between the hearer and the word. And so the title and my opening remarks were intended to try to just go straight for the heart. Um, how did the title, if, if you may not have even noticed it, Kevin, but what are your thoughts on that? Right. I think with the title being in the, the negative and all that, it's like a question, like it feels almost accusatory, right? It's like, as a hearer, it's like you have no excuse to say that you're not, or it's not relevant to you. The it, it, it almost feels like it's targeted. It's, and like you say that it, prepares the hearers that okay this is this is important to me because I, I am involved. You can't say, oh it's not for me. It's well put. Um, in legal terms, I know your background is is in uh, as a medical student and a medical medically trained um, Kevin, but Tim, I think you do deal with uh, legal stuff in your final work. A little bit. Contracts so the, and whatnot. Yeah, so the in a contract, the person who has the burden of proof, you know, or the burden, uh, you know, usually when I've signed leases, for instance, it's the landlord. I've the the, 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 the renter has the burden. You've got to clean the place out, or I'm keeping your deposit. So, I think by putting it in the negative, it puts the burden on the hearer to say, "I'm I'm not hating my brother." Okay, prove it. In a way, it was guilty until proven innocent, and it wasn't like a high-handed move because hopefully, my my own credibility and even my tone and presentation was I'm involved in this too. This is something that we all struggle with. Another so, thing I feel like 
Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Like another thing I feel like with having it in the negative, it somewhat implies that you should have been able to do the positive. Like, for example, like, why, why, why don't you love me? It's like, you should have been able to love me. Or why did you not do your homework? You should have been able to do your homework. So it, it, uh -huh. it, like, it has that, but at least to me, it has that deeper or like, it's hanging at the background that like, why don't you love your brother? You should be able to love your brother. Like, you're capable of doing it, but why aren't you doing it? Something like that. Kevin, that's a great insight. And in that sense, Kevin, the title is already exegeting the passage because the passage tells us, I think the key verse in the passage is verse eight. It is true or it is realized in him and in you. So the light, the life, the love of God has been experienced, fully experienced by Christ. And that's as I got it, I did a little ordo salutis work in, in the sermon, uh, you know, our status and then our, our, our working out of that status in terms of justification and sanctification. There's some good covenant theology there too. I think for, for this title, Phil, from this week, Why Don't You Love Your Brother? Every, uh, two things. One, it, it's right from the passage. So it's not like, you, you know, you're, you're kind of, not that you took it verbatim from John's words, but it's not like you pulled a rabbit out of a hat and made up a, a, a catchy title to go with a topic that was different. Um, but at the same time, what a kind of a shining, a, really shining a spotlight on something that I think we struggle with, not only as Christians, but in our particular context of being South Jersey Christians. And this comes up in our conversations from time to time, just kind of our local geographical context and some of the struggles that we have being where we are situated. To Kevin's point, um, I don't think anyone would think that they don't love their brother. But the question then becomes, it kind of begs two questions. What do you mean by love? And what do you mean by brother? Um, and I think you address both of those really well in the sermon. But, you know, I, I think our, our, our initial reaction, at least my initial reaction to someone asking me that question is going to be pretty defensive. Well, I do, but then when I get exposed for what the question is really asking or what those definitions of those two words really mean, then it's like, oh, okay, yeah, I probably, if I'm really being honest, that, that is something I, I struggle with. And I think that's particularly relevant to um, our church and our context in, in South Jersey because that's, that's just kind of a standard thing and actually neither of you are from South Jersey so maybe this is something that I, I, I feel a lot more than than either of you do but um, you know it's everything's about family here people live 
we're born here, live here, and die here. Generally, like no one moves more than an hour away from South from South Jersey. Generally, and because of a fa it's like a familial type thing. And so when you're asking, why don't you love your brother? That's a real stinging, poignant question to ask uh, in our church's context. So yeah. um, just a, just another layer. Um, and we probably don't have time to really suss that out today, but it's just a note that I wanted to point out because it, it, it had a, a particular ring or a particular depth to it to me because I'm often thinking about that in the context of some of my relationships with people outside of our church who, you know, I say that I love and I would even call them brothers potentially, but it's a different kind of love and a different kind of brother, to be honest. So, mm -hmm. um, anywho, I, I think that probably one of the best ways to approach, <laughs> we often call this trying to grab a tiger by the tail. So one of the best ways to approach this text, since there is so much, Phil and Kevin is to, I think, let's just read it, read the passage and, and walk through it. And we can highlight those things, Phil, that you brought up in your, in your sermon, and then maybe get to some of the other application and implications that, um, you know, weren't discussed from the pulpit. That being that we're doing the okay. deeper cut here. So, um, so as a proposed approach, mm -hmm. how about I read it? From my translation here, and then we can talk about it in two chunks, or at least the first two chunks of these verses seven and eight. But before I do that, I, I do want to tack on to your South Jersey comments and family, just because both Kevin and I have moved here from a long distance away. Kevin is farther away than, than I am, but um, and uh, I, I used to say part of part of my challenge in being an outsider in South Jersey culture is that I look like I could be from South Jersey. And so people make all kinds of assumptions about me. And I'm like, I'm not from here. I don't speak the language. I don't do what you do. I don't think like you think. I don't talk, you know, I don't, I just don't get it. And I'm starting to get it. But um, some of those having been here now for 15 years, some of that is, is is some of those wrinkles are smoothing out. I'm continuing to acclimate. For example, I've learned to drink water. So, <laughs> and, <laughs> so uh, you know, let, let the listener understand. So, anyway, um, it's hard being an outsider and because our church has a number of students from the university, because we have international students, because we have people who are uh, immigrants from different countries, who have different primary language. We are a majority culture church with a significant number of people who have different traditions than the majority culture. It, it presents a challenge to to make sure we're not ignoring that. And this isn't, you know, this isn't a podcast and it wasn't a sermon for inclusivity or, you know, multicultural integration, but I think that's right there at, at the kind of the first cut of application. 
is being open to being curious about other people and where they're coming from, what they're struggling with. Um, I think I said, you know, what's hindering you from loving your brother? Well, for somebody who's a minority or doesn't speak English as their first language, but comes from outside of our area, something might be hindering people like me and maybe like Kevin is I don't know how to love other people. I'm not sure they need me. I'm not sure I'm important. I mean, this this could be it's a it's a bit of a reverse thing. It isn't just so. Anyway, any thoughts from you on that, Kevin? And then we'll jump into verse seven after you give some input. Yeah, I agree with you, Phil. Like, definitely, as an outsider, or at least an immigrant, like it's a different culture. And I think one of the nuances is that as an immigrant, then we would want to, in a way, fit in, but we're not really sure how. And there is that saying, like, like when in Rome, do as the Romans do. And I think what happens is that in an attempt, in our attempt to, like, belong, we try to or we tend to copy what the others are doing. Whether that's right or wrong, we don't know. But because that's the examples that we see around us, then that's what we end up doing, right? Whether it is how we like show care for other people or how we want to show love to our brothers in church. If we don't have any basis to do that, then the best we could do is copy what other people around us are doing. Wow, great point. Great point. Let's hope we're worthy of imitation. Or maybe that's the goal to aspire. Mm -hmm. uh, verse 7, I have, says this. We'll, we'll jump in here. Beloved, and I spent some time on that word in particular, I do not write a new commandment to you, but an old command which you had from the beginning. The old command is the word which you heard. So just notice the, the singular, the word is singular, that's logos, command is singular, whereas uh, up in verse, so verse five, last week, word is singular, but verse uh, verse 3 and verse 4, commands is plural. So it does seem like there's a, a, a focusing. Even in 3, 4, 5, and 6, we go from commands to word. And then in 7, we go from command to word. So what is the word we heard? What is the message? Uh, I, I'm, I'm playing around a little bit with this, but word with, with the word logos, the word is Christ. It's the word of the gospel. Mm. So John, in a very subtle way, is doing what Jesus himself did. He said, when he was asked, teacher, in Matthew 22, what is the greatest commandment in the law? He quotes Deuteronomy 6.5, to love the Lord, God, the Lord, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he says, you didn't ask for this, but I'll give you the second best commandment, Leviticus 19.18, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. 
I had someone tell me that in doing that, Jesus eliminated all the other commandments. No, he did not eliminate them. He concentrated them and summarized them so that these become, this, if I can put it this way, the spirit of all the commandments. It's love for God and love for neighbor. And in fact, you can go to every single one of the commandments and see the vertical vector of how does this reflect my love for God and the horizontal vector, how does this reflect my love for one another? And, and Jesus does both of those in his life, walking or living. This is verse uh, six, the one who's, who says, um, you know, I remain in him or who, who wants to remain in him ought to walk just as he walked, ought to live as Jesus lives. So, hey, Phil, in thing. verse 7, is the word the same reference as in verse 1 with the word of life that was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen? No. Yes. So, so John is constantly giving new meaning to the same words. Kevin was observing this. Kevin did some, uh, he shared some of his study of the text before we started recording. So, um, in verse one, he's playing around with the word in John 1 1, I think, which is Jesus. Mm -hmm. Here, I think it's Jesus is in the background, is the word. It's more the, the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 22, if I can put it that way, the two greatest commandments, and probably specifically the word which is in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, love one another as I have loved you, so mm -hmm. you also have to love one That word. But they're all tied together. You know, John, John isn't one for sharp. I mean, he's he has a binary way of communicating, but it's very fluid within, in terms of what he means in any given use of, of one of his binaries. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So that's verse seven. Um, Kevin, you, you, you shared before that we started recording this pattern, new, old, old, new. So seven, I do not write a new command to you, but an old command that you had from the beginning. The old command is the word that you heard at the same time, verse eight. A new command I write to you. So that's that's a that's a pattern. New, old, old, new, new on either side, and old in the middle. So he's definitely wanting us to see this um, kind of this logical flow, and it's not new in the first reference. But it is new in the second reference. What do you make of that, Kevin? And and I tried to explain it in, in the sermon. Like I, I think it's like you said in the sermon, Phil. It's not something new in the sense that we don't know it, or at least in the readers don't know it. Like definitely loving one another something that they've known ever since like from the old testament right but at the same time like it 
is new, like there might be a new quality to it, which you have mentioned in your sim, like there's a new quality or there might be a new uh, target or like a new aspect towards it, right? So it's not, it's like not new, like, oh, where did this come from? How come, what's John talking about now? He's never said this before, but it's new in the sense that like, like I think the same way that when you're reading, when you're reading the Bible and you get something new out of it, it's always been there. You just probably haven't realized it yet. That's very well put. Now, um, in your explanation, you see, without directly saying it, John is implying that they're not doing what they need to be doing. Or that they need to, I think the phrase I used in the sermon was they need to renew their commitment to what isn't new. Right, I feel like it's John somewhat saying it, like, I've told this to you before, but just in case you forgot. <laughs> That's good. We'll call that, we'll call that the, uh, the Temu translation. Or the Temu paraphrase. Um, yeah, so it's the word which you heard. And then verse 8, ESV begins with, at the same time called an adversity. Technically, the word is again, but it's, it's the word again that has a negative tone. But at the same time, however, uh, yet, it's almost like not so fast. I know you heard it. So I like this, this paraphrase of the ESV uses at the same time because it clues us in to whatever to Kevin's point, whatever we heard, at the same time, it needs to be heard again. And in fact, the word again implies that, even though we're not translating it as again, that would be a little confusing. If I said, the old command is the word which you heard again, the new command I write to you, that, that doesn't make sense. You have to explain it, I think, the way the ESV does, which is to say, yet. Yeah. So there's, there's the... The reader, John's readers, we hears the sermon. We're being told that there's something we need to do right now. Would you get that also, um, Phil, in, in verse 8, because, because of the because in verse 8? Meaning, I'm okay, writing you so, because, like, there's a reason. So read, read, read your ESV. So I'll read all of verse eight. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away okay. and the true light is already shining. Okay, so let's talk about that because for a minute. Uh, what, um, Kevin, I'll, I'll, I'll bounce past this to you. What, what role is the because playing in the sentence? So it's, oh, it's a little bit in terms of logic or English grammar, either one. Right. So, I mean, the because is there, meaning John is like saying, I'm writing this to you and this is the reason, this is why I'm writing this to you. So it's it's like the purpose, I think, behind 
why he's giving this quote unquote new commandment. Okay, is it the purpose of him giving the new commandment, or is it more is it more proximate to what is true in him and is true in you? So you're going back to the new command, the beginning of verse eight. But it is because in the middle there what is true in him and in you. Or what what is I think I, I um, suggested in several commentators what what has been realized in him or actualized or fully fully embodied or experienced. You could you could try flipping it and starting with the darkness is passing away and the true light already shines. Now what? Right, so it looks like the, the darkness passing away and the true light is already shining. So this new commandment is true in him and in you. I, I think I think that's that's half correct because and I said this the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. This is a reference to the this is a bit of a stretch, guys. So heresy alert here. Jesus's death, resurrection, and ascension. Can you see a hint of that, at least in that phrase? So the darkness is passing away, meaning like uh, to pass away means to be uh, eliminated, canceled, um, diminished, paused, set aside, defeated. This is what I'm saying. This is the death of Christ. And then his ascension and re resurrection, ascension, session at the right hand of God, outpouring of the Holy Spirit. True light is shining, it's already shining. Presently, John loves to emphasize salvation in the present. It's not it's future true, but it's also present. So that's true in him. That's why I said you're half right. This is true. He is, this has been realized in him. The question is, is this true in you? <laughs> or to the point of my sermon title, why isn't that true in you? Like what I was getting from like the darkness is passing away, the true light is already shining. It's like what comes into my mind is related to sanctification in a way. Like darkness is passing away. And I know you mentioned this in your sermon too, like passing meaning it's still there, but it's going away. So it, it, there's like that process in it. And going back to like sanctification, which we know is a process, we're not yet we're not yet fully sanctified. But the true light is already shining, like Christ is already in us, the Holy Spirit is already working in us. We're already justified, we're already saved. So like there's that contrast, like we're not a hundred percent holy and perfect 
but at the same time like jesus has already like claimed the victory for us exactly so this is like um, the th the third third estate and the fourfold estate of, of man like we're able not to sin in christ yes yes right because the I'm new commandment is to love one another the way Jesus calls us to and, and did. And apart from him, we can't do that. But because the commandment is in him and now in us, that darkness is passing away and we are able to keep that new commandment. So he's kind of charging them to do away with your sin and do the new commandment that now you, you can do because of Christ and in Christ. Wow, so so helpful, guys. Um, two things come to mind. One, Hebrews 2, we do not yet see everything put under his feet. Mm. Which is a, yep. a, a reference you know, to so many things. But Psalm 2 as well is kind of echoed the Hebrews 2 and then obviously Philippians 2. At the, uh, you know, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Uh, not yet, though. This hasn't yet. The darkness has been defeated in a definitive manner, but it's not yet completely eliminated. And so we're already seeing here our role in, the, in John's eschatology, uh, his understanding of the present and future of the world. Our role is to eliminate the darkness by the lives we lead. And to your point, Tim, we are fully equipped to do this because of the sufficiency of Christ. Um, so I guess the second thing is that um, it, it's true in him. The darkness isn't just passing away because of, because of Christ. In Christ's own experience, his human experience, he has conquered the darkness fully. He is fully sanctified. Not that he ever had sin, but he was made perfect through suffering. In that sense, he's sanctified. He's made holy. The Holy One is made holy. That's, that's a paradox of the ages. Uh, and certainly he is shining. The light of Christ is shining through, uh, shining in the world through his people. But is it? So I, I guess the second thing I'm trying to say here, Tim, you, know, you were sharing, uh, do I hate my brother? No, I, I, I love my brother. Well, the darkness is passing away. The true light already shines. Is this true in you? I'm, I'm turning the statement. I know it's true in him. I'm turning it into a question. Is it true in you? And in John's spirit-inspired, masterful way, he's, he's inviting us to implicate ourselves, to find ourselves in this, not altogether negative, but he, he's a better preacher than I am, so he wasn't so rough on us. He snuck up on us here. Uh, yes. The light is shining in you, uh, but then, but then he, he definitely gets rough on us in verse 9. So... I read verse 9 in this way. The one who says 
he is in the light yet and yet he hates his brother in reality is in darkness mm. or is still in darkness we might say functionally because i think he's talking to the church so your functional existence is as if jesus is still in the grave because you are pouring darkness out of every all ten fingers, your eyes, your nose, your ears, your mouth, your head, shoulders, knees, and toes, just just a, a conduit of darkness. Because um, and of course the saying versus the doing is has already been addressed by John that the hypocrisy of the difference in our profession versus our, our action, which is where my comments about theology, orthodoxy versus orthopraxy came in, in the sermon. Can we can we pause maybe and, and linger on a couple of these words for clarification purposes, Phil? So, for instance, hate is a strong word. Is hate okay. simply here anything that's not the love that he's talking about? Is that the definition yeah, I, of hate, essentially? Yeah, I, I kind of dodged this one. I didn't really get into hate. Um uh, there's no hate here, though, Tim. So, <laughs> or love lives here. Love of preaching, love of coffee. <laughs> anyway, um, I, I never got into the yard yard sign wars. Uh, I don't think either of you two did either. But, uh, the, the reason just quick aside, the reason I didn't get into hate is because it comes up several times in John and I felt like verse 8 was, was the key and, and I, I think I I was definitely left it open for people to think it through but let's let's, let's explore it um, in, in my research the use of the word hate in the New Testament has a pretty broad range so it's everything from kind of an indifference or even just ignoring something to, you know, an actual conscious um, hate. So there's a range of meaning. But I, I think love kind of has the same range too. So I'm not sure where these two words meet, except that John's speaking in broad categories. Um, towards God, with the mind of God, in the light of God, we're just going to call that love, okay? Away from God, with the mind of the world that is passing away, and in the darkness, we're going to call that hate. So whatever you can fit into either box, yeah. fits. That's good. That's really helpful, Phil. Um, that's kind of what, where my mind was going. But so thank you for validating <laughs> my thoughts there, because I think it's easy to read hate and go, oh, I don't, I don't hate people, but I don't, I, I don't think that it's as maybe clear cut a definition as our minds might 
maybe want it to be in our in our, our sinfulness and our pride. Mm -hmm. um, so that idea, it's more of a posture or a moving in a direction than it is a line in the sand. Like this is not hate and this is hate kind of thing. It kind of reminds me, and I might be jumping off topic here, but um, in Luke, where Jesus says, if anyone does not hate his father or mother, right? Um, I think it's the same. I don't think Jesus is telling us, like, you should hate your father and mother in the strictest sense of the word. But there's definitely some sort of, like, degrees, I guess. That's, that's really a strong. Um, I did also spend quite a bit of time thinking about that text. Just for our listeners, if you want to look it up, it's in Matthew chapter 10. It's also in um, so 10.22. There's a couple of hate references that I came across. Um, and I did mention this one, Matthew 5.43. You've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. So, Tim, just structurally, or, or what I'm doing is I'm showing you how I how I got to my understanding of hate. Matthew yeah. 10, 22, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. The one who endures to the end is safe. Um, there's an enduring quality to love. Uh, and it is definitely love for Jesus's name, all that he represents. So hating a brother would be quitting that or getting tired of doing that, getting into a lazy mode. And instead of confessing that the world is passing away, we say, well, this world isn't that bad after all. And my church culture is, it, it's okay. We got a good statement of faith and the pastor you know he's got a nice he's a nice guy nice family i've got friends here it's good enough and and you get comfortable in the world rather than the world is passing away first corinthians seven thirty one: the present form of this world is passing away psalm 144 verse 4 man is like a breath like a passing shadow and this I love. Uh, and in our context, First John two seventeen, the world is passing away with its lusts. So John again sharpens the things that we dull, and he clarifies with the light of Christ the things that we're blurring. And I think hatred is one of those. Um, um, Luke fourteen twenty six was Kevin's. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father or mother or wife or children or brother or sister, yes, even his own life cannot be my disciple. So if we accuse John of being extreme and working in binary categories, he learned it from the master. So. <laughs> um, Quick, quick, Kevin, what did you think of, of that little quick survey of hatred in the Gospels? Yeah, it's just interesting to see how many ways the word is being used. And like, I don't, or at least to my 
limited knowledge. I do not know of any clear like definition that the Bible gives on what hate is, like, or at least like a clear example. This is what it means to hate someone. But I think like compared to love, in which Jesus clearly says, "Love us, I have loved you." It's never. I I don't think there's ever been like a passage in the Bible that says if you hate someone the same way that XYZ hates or something like that. Actually, there is. Uh, Psalm, Psalm 139, I think it's 22. Do I not hate those who hate you? Do I not abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. That's as extreme as it gets, to my knowledge, in, in the whole of Scripture. Um, the, the exact opposite of that. And, and it's it's one of those verses is a bit of a conundrum for uh, pastors and exegetes when we're trying to explain what that means. But the exact opposite heaven would be Moses and then also Paul in the New Testament. Blot me out of the book of life that they may be saved. Hate me and love them. We have these polar extremes. And um, to, to, to the question, why didn't I delve into this? Well, uh, I've touched on it a couple of times, but one, it's going to come up later. Two, I preached on it in detail in 2017. I had a whole sermon on it, on Matthew 5. And uh, I said, uh, the sermon, as I was reviewing it, it was like, wow, I packed a lot in there. Um, I didn't want to clutter clutter this sermon up with a, with a long excursus on hatred, but I did spend some time in Titus three describing our lives before we hated others and were hated by others, and I wonder what you guys thought of that. What was your reference, Phil? Titus 3, 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Right, like in Titus, it's a, it's like a past, um, it's a yes. past condition. And here in John, he's saying like, if you if you if you still hate your brother and you're still in darkness, it's like you're still like tying the two together. It's like you're still in that past condition, basically. If you still hate your brother. You're right, Kevin, in verses 4, 5, and 6, 4, 5, 6, and 7 in Titus show the new reality, which is in such contrast to that lifestyle. Uh, one more hate reference, Revel, uh, Revelation 2, 6, Jesus is commending the church, probably the church that John is writing to, actually. 
Jesus is commending the church in Ephesus, saying, You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I hate. So this is a bit of a love the sinner, hate the sin kind of a situation, where unlike in Psalm 139, uh, Jesus in this letter is a little, it's a little more careful to, to, to differentiate the works of the Nicolaitans versus the Nicolaitans themselves. So, in other words, there's a place. There's a place for hate. I wanted to chime in with one more reference that I thought of from Paul in Galatians, where we, you know, he's urging the Galatians to to stop acting as though they were still slaves. They've been adopted as sons. And in, in chapter five, he says, for freedom, Christ has set us free, stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And then a little further down in five, for you were called the freedom brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So this idea of um, you're not in the darkness anymore, to so stop walking in the darkness, you know, put it in in John's language. We also get a hint as to what hatred is when the, the haters are described. So um, just in terms of like good Bible study technique, they're blind, they're mm -hmm. ignorant, and there's a stumble. And so whenever you see blindness, ignorance, and stumbling in the Bible, if you're doing any of that, then that's, again, a functional hatred. It's, it's functionally living as Christians as if Jesus didn't come, or he hadn't fully empowered us to be his ambassadors on earth as his new creational representatives, new creatures in the new creation. It's, it's, a, it's why it's so strong. Because it denies the Christ who died for us. So um, the, the, the ignorance is why I partly got on the, the orthodoxy versus orthodoxy. Because orthodoxy is strong on knowledge. And John is saying, well, actually, you don't even know what you're talking about. It's a, it's almost like a, a lack of integrity, Phil, in the in the true definition of integrity. There's a disintegration between your knowledge and then your practice. I, I thought of the stumbling block in Matthew 18 as well. Do not put a stumbling block in front of any of these these little ones. Mm. And in, in the context, Jesus is. And I'm, I'm sorry to do this, guys, but Jesus is essentially talking about evangelism. And the Pharisees essentially were content with what they knew to be true about God and the Bible and the world. And they were rejecting uh, Jesus's kingdom expansion efforts that included children and prostitutes and lost sheep and such. <laughs> so... Um, 
And then, of course, Matthew 23, they tie up heavy burdens and they don't lift one little pinky to help others carry them. I place them on men's shoulders, he says. So, stumbling block is pretty. Looking at that one particular word, Kevin, give me your, your Bible opinion on this. Um, there is no stumbling block in him. The one who loves his brother, verse 10, remains in the light, abides. There's that continual sanctification call. Once again, uh, you can't just move into the light and then put it on autopilot. You have to continually abide, continually remain in the light. There is no stumbling block. There's no fault, cause of stumbling, stain. How, how, do, how do you read that? Where's the stumbling block? Right, in the ESV version, it says there's no cause for stumbling. And is it in him? Uh, yeah, in him, there is no cause for stumbling. Okay. So in, no. in your translation, I think if I heard it right, like there is no stumbling block. Cause for stumbling is fine. Stumbling block, cause for stumbling, same thing. Um, block of stumbling, cause of stumbling. We're just, it's, these are synonyms. But my, I guess my question is, is, um, so, where does the stumbling block come from? It's in him. It says it's in him. So what does that mean? Right. That's what I'm trying to throw in. Right. And what comes into my mind here, and I might be totally off the rails, you'll have to bring me back. But I'm what I'm being reminded of here is, I can't remember the passage, but like, there is that passage talking about how Jesus they rejected the cornerstone and it became a stumbling block to them or something like that. That's what's coming to my mind right now. And where it says in him there is no cause for stumbling. Like if you're abiding in Christ, then there's no reason for you to like lose your way. But like if you are walking in the darkness, obviously can't see anything. And whether that stumbling block is because you're not acknowledging who Christ is and therefore you're stumbling over him. At least that's what that's what's coming into my mind right now and I have no idea how on point I am. It's <laughs> a good try. You have thoughts on this, Tim, or do you wanna uh... Well my my only thought here, Phil, briefly is uh, verse 11, the blindness that, that's in his eyes because he's in the darkness. So if, it, if, the, if the stumbling block is in you, you're bl and, and John says that you're, you're blind if you're walking in darkness, then it's not an external thing that you stumble over. It's you're stumbling because you can't see where you're, you're going. That's, that's how I would, I don't know if I'm right in that answer, but that's my, that's my, take, my take on it. So, Okay, so that's, that's good. Um, I think that builds on Kevin and gets us a little closer. Translate 
stumbling block as fault or stain. And um, biblically speaking, if you're blind, you are at fault. Blindness is not an excuse in the Bible. <laughs> you can't make yourself see, but you have no excuse to not see. And that's a paradox of the sovereign grace of God. And our, again, it's a very, uh, we're nerding out here when I say this, it's a very covenantal sermon. Uh, there's so many nuances of covenant theology in this sermon. Of course, I didn't use the word covenant, not normally what you preach on, I mean, sometimes you can, but uh, because I'm a covenant theologian, it came out at every point in the message. The, the covenant is that we are unable to rescue ourselves apart from God's grace. And God does rescue us in Him and eliminates the blindness for which we are at fault and without excuse, but He graciously remediates by driving the darkness away because it's true in him and now it's true of me too because I'm united to Christ. My covenant head. So I think that about does it, guys. We've, um, we've, we've solved all the questions and answered. Yeah, there's nothing the left to ever be said or written on for John. Yeah. Two no, verses seven through eleven. <laughs> three of us. Well, at least Kevin and me. I'm not so sure about you, but Kevin and me. I did. I did nothing but be a stumbling block to both of you. <laughs> it was. It was uh, really good. As 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 I've said, I think every single episode we've done on First John so far, Phil. I come in. I come in to our podcast. I don't want to say very confused, but you know, just kind of struggling, struggling in my relationship with John, and I come out the other end feeling so much more encouraged, um, having spent some time thinking through it with uh, with you and with whoever's with us. So thank you, Kevin, for your help in that today, and um, I hope our listeners would feel the same way or say the same thing, and that's really the goal of the podcast is. Not just an opportunity for Phil and I to, to um, you know, have our own commentary. Oh, oh we have we have more guests. Perfect timing. We're just about to start hour two of the deeper cut. Now <laughs> <laughs> um, they they now know that I'm also not in a Lancaster pub. Oh. <laughs> But they're not going to tell you where I am. <laughs> it's an undisclosed location for the podcast. Yes, but Phil, Phil was just greeted in his location for our listeners by uh, Will and hold, Sarah Bausch. So I'm going to have to sign off here, Tim. Sounds good. Thanks, Take Phil. Care, Kevin, thank you for taking the time today to join too. us. And... Um, for our listeners, we hope that this was helpful and um, not not very confusing. If you have further questions or or things that we didn't get to talk about today, um, and would like to, you know, have a a deepest cut conversation, 
feel free to reach out to any one of us and we'd be happy to, um, to dialogue with you. And of course, we look forward to you joining us again, hopefully next week on The Deeper Cut.